0: Welcome to The Word on Medicine, the conversation dedicated to examining medical innovation and discovery in Southeast Wisconsin. The Word on Medicine is presented by Selig Leasing and features the faculty and research teams of the Medical College of Wisconsin sharing cutting edge new knowledge and discoveries. The experts you will hear from today deliver advanced care at Eastern Wisconsin's only academic medical center. And now, The Word on Medicine.
1: Good afternoon, I am Dr. Doug Evans, and on behalf of the faculty of the Medical College of Wisconsin, welcome to the Word on Medicine, where knowledge is changing life. This program is made possible by a research and educational grant from Selig Leasing Company. In business since 1949, Selig Leasing has grown to be one of the largest and most respected independent leasing companies for small and medium-sized businesses in the Midwest. Cieling Leasing has a unique brand of personal service and therefore is just perfect to be the sponsor of The Word on Medicine which will bring innovation and discovery across the radio to our listeners a program brought to you from a uniquely dedicated group of physicians and scientists who are committed to a similar brand of personal service. We are very excited to bring to you our seventh program devoted to colorectal cancer and the importance of colonoscopy screening an important message for all of us as we start the new year. Two weeks ago, we discussed kidney and liver transplantation. I hope you are able to tune in. If not, you can find that program, along with our previous programs, on our website at mcw.edu surgery or via the iHeartMedia website and search the word on medicine. Always feel free to send us an email at contactsurgery at mcw.edu. I am fortunate to be your host for The Word on Medicine, where knowledge is changing your life by making tomorrow better than yesterday. In way of background, I joined the Medical College of Wisconsin in 2009 as chair of the Department of Surgery, coming to Milwaukee after 19 years on the faculty of the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. I am very excited to be part of today's program and would like to introduce our panel of experts who will focus on colorectal cancer as well as quality of life after surgery, especially uh, important in our final segment. First is our program chair, Dr. Carrie Peterson, who is a multi-talented colorectal surgeon. She received her medical degree, as well as most recently a master's degree in research from the Medical College of Wisconsin. She completed her surgical training at the University of California in San Diego, and then moved to New York to complete two fellowships in colorectal oncology and surgery at both Memorial Sloan-Kettering Cancer Center and Cornell. In 2014, we were very fortunate to have a return to MCW. In the first segment of the program, Dr. Peterson will be joined by Drs. Tim Rodolfi and Peter Iconsier. Dr. Rodolfi received his medical degree and master's degree in translational science, from the Medical College of Wisconsin, where he then completed his surgical training. Dr. Rodolphi then completed a fellowship in colorectal surgery at the Cleveland Clinic. We were fortunate to recruit him back to our faculty in 2013. Dr. Iconsier is a faculty member in the Division of Gastroenterology here at MCW. He received his medical degree at the University of Wisconsin and completed internal medicine training at Rush University where he stayed for a fellowship in gastroenterology. Dr. Iconsier joined the MCW faculty in 2013. So with that lengthy introduction, uh, Dr. Peterson, Carrie, and I'll use first names for the remainder of the program, tell us about colorectal cancer, how big a problem it is, and and what we're doing to, to solve it.
2: Well, that's quite a large question, but I'll tackle what I can. Um, So colorectal cancer is really um, two cancers combined, the colon and the rectum. Um, They're both part of the lower GI tract, um, and we think they develop in the same way, so we tend to uh, lump them together when we talk about them um, for a lot of different things. Together, colorectal cancer affects about 135,000 people uh, across the United States every year. And unfortunately, about fifty thousand people, fifty thousand uh, people, succumb to the disease um, every year as well. So it's uh, the fourth most common cancer in the United States, and unfortunately, the second deadliest.
1: And how much of of colorectal cancer is preventable?
2: Quite a bit. Probably about ninety percent of colon cancer, colorectal cancer, is preventable with screening techniques.
1: Well, that's a great segue to Peter. So, Peter. Describe to our listeners who may not know about colonoscopy uh, what it is and when people should consider having a, co- a screening colonoscopy.
3: Great, thanks. So, in general, we recommend that the average risk person begin screening colonoscopies at age 50. There are a couple nuances to that recommendation where we do begin sooner, especially if there's a family history of colon cancer, or African Americans, we start screening at age 45. A couple other smaller nuances, we screen a little bit earlier for Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis as well.
1: When, when, when you have um, a, a screening colonoscopy, two issues always come up that, that I know our listeners are going to think about. Number one, they're concerned about having uh, a scope because you can describe this, but basically it's a long uh, telescope that goes up one's bottom to look at the inside of the entire colon. So people are nervous about, um, about the pain and discomfort associated with that. And then something that is probably more famous than many um, uh, famous athletes is the discomfort of the prep the night before. So maybe you can talk about both of those issues and give us the real story.
3: You're correct, and I think probably the better term is infamous bowel prep because that's the part (laughs) that patients complain about most. However, although it's the most challenging part, it's probably the most important part because it's what cleans the colon really well and allows us to get a good look to remove the polyps, and that's the whole reason we're there to do the procedure. So in general, I'll walk you through a colonoscopy. The day before the colonoscopy, you have a special diet for about 24 hours. You have to stay on clear liquids during that time, and then... The night before the procedure is when you take the first half of the bowel prep and most people can take that the night before and then they sleep throughout the night and they have a regular night's sleep and then the morning of the procedure, they take the second half of their bowel prep. Then we bring you in for the procedure. The and day what
1: can you just describe what a normal prep is?
3: Sure. So, the days of the big four-liter jug that we gave you and drank it and the night before and said, good luck, we'll see you tomorrow, those days are kind of gone. We now have improved. I, rem- I remember those days. <laughs> We've now improved it quite a bit. So we now do these split dose lower volume bowel preps, where instead of drinking four liters, it's usually only one to two liters of the solution you have to drink. And we split the dose, meaning you take half of it the night before, half of it the morning of. And we found that when you split the dose and give a lower volume bowel prep, we actually improve the, the, the bowel prep itself and we improve the tolerability. We find that it causes less nausea, patients are able to get it down easier, and we actually find they like it better because they do get to usually sleep throughout the night. So we've, we've made some progress, but like I said, it's still the part that's probably the most challenging for patients.
1: Sure. And then what happens on the day of the procedure?
3: So the day of the procedure, you check in. We place an IV so we can give you medications, and then through the IV, we give you medications that sedate you. So they get you nice and comfortable, so for the procedure, you don't feel the pain. The procedure itself only takes about 30 to 45 minutes to do. During the procedure, we're taking a really close look looking for polyps, and if we see polyps, we take them off.
1: And what is a polyp?
3: So a polyp's kind of like a little growth inside your colon. So if your colon is like a road, this is like a little bump. And those bumps are the ones that have a potential, if they're not removed, to turn into cancer. So by removing them, we remove the chance that they would ever turn into colon cancer. And that's why people who get colonoscopies live longer than people who don't because they get less colon cancer because we remove these little polyps when they're in a small precancerous. Now, do
1: virtually all colon cancers arise from polyps?
3: Yes, so there are a couple of nuances with that as well. There's a traditional cancer sequence, and then there's some hereditary cancers that kind of follow a different sequence. but yes, the thought is that most polyps colon cancers develop from polyps
1: so if i had if if any of our listeners were really religious about getting a colonoscopy whenever their doctor told them to, the likelihood of getting colon or rectal cancer would be what. It's reduced
3: by about 90%, kind of like Dr. Peterson alluded to, by, re- by getting routine surveillance colonoscopies when you're supposed to, we reduce your chance of getting colon cancer by upwards of 90%, which is quite remarkable.
1: So just reiterate for our listeners one more time, when should someone get their first colonoscopy, and then how often are they repeated?
3: So in general, we like to hammer home the message that we start at age 50, and if there's no polyps, then we repeat it every 10 years. Now, if we do find the precancerous type of polyps, we generally repeat that in three to five years depending on the size and the number of polyps. If there's a family history of colon cancer, that interval usually is five years at the longest just because we like to keep a closer eye on things because you're more prone to develop those precancerous type of polyps with a family history.
1: Sure. Well, that's a perfect segue to, to Carrie, and then we'll go to Tim. Maybe, Carrie, you and Tim can split the high-risk syndromes that predispose to colon and rectal cancer, and just give a, a brief review of them. I think we briefly alluded to uh, inflammatory bowel disease. It would be nice to touch on those, uh, as well as some of the other genetic conditions.
2: Right. Um, so uh, the inflammatory bowel disease are ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. Um, they're you know, relatively common. Um, and they cause a lot of inflammation within the colon and parts of the intestine. The thought is that inflammation in the cells of the colon causes an increased rate of turnover of those cells. They die and grow new more often than they would in normal patients. And every time, of course, a new cell is formed, it creates new genetic material, which leads to an opportunity for a mutation that has the potential to cause cancer. And so that is one of the reasons why patients with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease are at a higher risk.
1: So, Tim, if uh, if one of our listeners uh, does not have Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, but uh, their aunt or uncle or maybe one of their parents had colon cancer, is that something that should should cause, uh, a greater level of surveillance? What should, what should a listener do if, uh, within their family, there clearly is a history of colon or rectal cancer?
4: Yeah. So, For uh, patients that have a family history or strong family history of colon and rectal cancer, we do kind of uh, look a little bit more closely at those patients, especially if there's a first degree relative that has a history of cancer. We usually suggest, as Dr. Eikensier had said, that those patients get screened at at an age 10 years younger than the person that had a diagnosis of colon cancer. So for instance, if uh, someone's father had a diagnosis of colon cancer at the age of 50, we would recommend those patients get screened at the age of 40. Now, of course, there are some very fancy uh, hereditary type syndromes uh, that people may have heard of, such as familial adenomatous polyposis, or HNPCC is another, which is an acronym for hereditary non-polyposis colon cancer. Um, And both of those syndromes have a genetic predisposition to them of a a specific gene mutation causing the colon and rectal cancers in those patients. If there's a very strong family history and we see that there's multiple levels of colon cancer in patients or uh, cancer is diagnosed at a fairly young age, we will have these patients be seen by a genetic counselor to have further investigation of the genetic structure to see if, there's, uh, if we need to be a little bit more aggressive in their surgical management.
1: And with the with currently with if they are seen by a genetic counselor and the genetic counselor recommends that they have a blood test to see if they have one of these predisposing uh, syndromes, would that typically be covered by insurance? Yes, it usually is. Um, and,
4: uh, the first step is that the genetic counselors would meet with the patient and they would have a discussion with them about what the ramifications of having a genetic tests are. A lot of these tests can be simply sent off as a swab from the inside of someone's cheek, or sometimes they are sent off as a, uh, as a blood test. But these are, if the patient does meet the, requ- uh, the requirements, uh, from the insurance company, they're almost always covered by insurance.
1: Perfect. Peter, I'll give you the last word in, in this segment. Suppose one of our listeners um, does not have a family physician right now or their family physician just retired and they are listening to this program right after the first of the year and their New Year's resolution is to get a colonoscopy. Can they Can they access a gastroenterologist or someone who would do a screening colonoscopy without a family physician?
3: Yes, they can. So, Right now, the gateway is through a family physician, but we have what we call open access procedures where a patients can call one of our gastroenterology clinic numbers, and they can say they're due for a colonoscopy, and then they can go ahead and get their procedure scheduled that way.
1: So for those of, those of you who are listening, we'll actually have that on our website, uh, and uh, we look forward to continuing this discussion further in our next segment. Thank you all very much.
0: You're listening to The Word on Medicine. Presented by Celia Lisa on News Talk 1130
1: WISN. Welcome back. This is Dr. Doug Evans from the Medical College of Wisconsin. And we are continuing our program on colorectal cancer. In the second segment of this program, Dr. Rodolfi will return and be joined by Drs. William Hall and James Thomas. Dr. Hall is an innovative radiation oncologist who specializes in cancers of the gastrointestinal tract and pancreas. He received his medical degree from Loyola University and completed his training in radiation oncology at Emory in Atlanta, Georgia. We were then very fortunate to recruit Bill to the Medical College of Wisconsin faculty in 2014. Dr. Jim Thomas is head of solid tumor oncology at MCW and also director of the clinical trials office for the Cancer Center. He received his M.D. and Ph.D. degrees from the Medical College of Wisconsin and was recruited back to his alma mater in 2010 from Ohio State University. Jim is an experienced and very thoughtful physician scientist who is always in search of better ways to treat patients with cancer. Well, let's start this segment uh, with Dr. Rodolfi. Tim, can you tell us what would happen once a patient is diagnosed with colon cancer. So unfortunately, at the time of that colonoscopy, uh, they were found to have a cancer rather than a benign polyp. How would they be taken care of? Yeah, so usually after the
4: colonoscopy, sometimes the gastroenterologist has a fairly good idea that they may have a colon cancer, but the definitive diagnosis comes from the pathologist, which would be a couple days after the colonoscopy is done. This news is usually delivered to the patient by the uh, primary care physician or the gastroenterologist that performed the procedure and then they're, uh, the patient is then usually referred to a surgeon. Um, at that point the patient would come to our office and we would discuss the diagnosis, answer any questions the patient may have and also initiate a staging workup. And a, st- a staging workup really helps us to determine the extent of the cancer and to determine really if the tumor has spread to anywhere else in the body. Uh, the staging workup usually includes a CT scan of the chest, abdomen and pelvis, uh, sometimes an MRI for rectal cancer. Uh, potentially a lab test or two and uh, this really helps us determine what the best approach for treatment for the patient is going to be once that diagnosis of cancer is made.
1: And they call it a staging workup because you're actually trying to determine the stage of the cancer and many virtually every patient we see has heard about cancer staging and they oftentimes say Dr. Rodolfi uh, what stage am I And can you explain a little bit about the staging system? I know it's fairly complex.
4: Right. So the staging uh, system for every cancer is different. And colon cancer is unique in that, um, well, I should back up a bit. The staging system is broken up into three major elements, uh, a part that discusses the tumor itself, a part that describes uh, lymph nodes involved potentially, and uh, a part that describes uh, metastasis. And the three letters that we use for that are the T and M acronym. Um, so in colon cancer, the T part is all based off of how deep the tumor has gone within the colon. It really doesn't matter how large the tumor is, but really how deep it's gone within the colon wall. N uh, refers to if there's any lymph nodes that are positive, and metastasis refers to if there's any spots within the liver or the lung that, uh, which are the most common sites of metastasis for colon cancer. So it really, uh, it can be simplified a little bit in that um, we really base the treatment off off whether the uh, nodes are positive in colon cancer or whether they're negative. And so negative uh, tumors are usually stage one,
1: and uh, node positive tumors are uh, stage two or higher. Great. Uh, and what patients would would receive surgery first, realizing that in general and and jim and and Bill will comment upon this in general their uh, the treatment options include surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy, which patients would get an operation straight away. So the patients that have
4: a diagnosis of colon cancer without any evidence of metastasis to either the lung or the liver, those patients would be ones that would, uh, ne- would likely undergo a surgery first approach. Uh, also patients with a rectal cancer that have very um, uh, non-locally advanced disease, meaning that they don't have a tumor that penetrates the rectal wall deeply or the lymph nodes are not positive,
1: those patients would also undergo
4: a surgery first approach.
1: Great. Bill, what's the difference between the colon and rectum? We've probably used those two terms uh, a little bit too loosely so far, and and
5: then we'll talk a little bit about radiation therapy. Sure. So this is an important point um, and is oftentimes a little confusing, but the colon and the rectum are both part of the human digestive tract, which is a long system of tubes that starts from the mouth and goes all the way down through the swallowing tube or the esophagus into the stomach, into the small bowels and intestine, and then ends in a long tube that is composed of both the colon and the rectum. The rectum is the portion of that tube that typically is the, the last portion of it where the stool is stored before it exits the body. There are a couple of different ways that we distinguish between the colon and the rectum and usually the rectum is the lower portion of the colon and is typically measured over a centimeter uh, or about approximately 15 to 20 centimeters from the very end of the digestive tract another way that we we often distinguish between the two is with an internal structure that is known as a peritoneal reflection that kind of drapes over some of the internal organs and intestines in your body so if someone if someone's having a colonoscopy
1: and and obviously the colon the 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 colonoscope is placed into into uh, someone's bottom through the anus the rectum is roughly how long in inches Tim would you say um I think a a safe bet would be
4: somewhere around twelve inches to a foot in length
1: so about the first foot or so is the is the rectum and the rest then would be the colon yeah um so bill what What is radiation therapy? Virtually everyone has heard the term, but it it remains very confusing. And when do you use it for uh, for rectal? We can focus mainly on
5: rectal cancer. Sure, so radiation therapy is one of the three common ways that we treat cancer, the two other ones being surgery and chemotherapy. Radiation therapy is invisible x-rays that you don't see or feel and they come out of a very large machine that we call a linear accelerator. And essentially, we use those X-rays to kill cancer cells. And those those X-rays are sent into the body, and they're very similar to X-rays that we use for diagnostic imaging studies, things like CT scans or chest X-rays, but they're much higher energy. And when they enter the body, they deposit uh, ionization or charged particles that move through cells and kill and damage cancer cells. So the idea, as you
1: mentioned, is to, is to kill the cancer cell and, and the linear accelerator looks like a... a, a- a a large tube that the that the patient slides into one of the questions we often get asked is how long are they in the linear excel are they in the machine with the with the beams focused on them how long does that take
5: well it it depends on what we're doing with the radiation beams but in general um, the patient will be lying on the radiation treatment table usually for approximately 10 to 15 minutes. That depends a little bit on the type of radiation that we're giving and the location in the body that we're treating. Sometimes it will be less than that and sometimes more than that. Well, we're going to come back to this in a minute.
1: I'll uh, I'll turn now to Dr. Thomas. Jim, the whole spectrum of chemotherapy and systemic therapy for colon and rectal cancer is such a a, a moving target. Maybe you can try to explain a little bit about uh, what chemotherapy is, and uh, some of the exciting things that are going on right now.
6: Well, thank you, Doug. Chemotherapy, in essence, is something that we give people, you know a medicine, a drug, that we give people to try to uh, kill cancer cells. And, and this comes in a variety of forms and has really changed dramatically over the last few decades, where uh, we have many different types of compounds. We have a lot of medicines that now are much more selective as far as hurting the cancer cells and not hurting people uh, or not hurting the normal tissue so much. And so it's something that's continued to develop to try and get better and better treatments to try and have it be more selective for the cancer and have less effect on the patient.
1: How does, if someone has an operation, so Tim uh, or Carrie takes out uh, one piece of the colon that had a a cancer in it, um, and there's no cancer anywhere else, why does the patient then need to get chemotherapy after the tumor is removed?
6: Well, you know, as much as we, we like to give credit to the surgeons, because the surgery is the most important thing that happens at uh, that time to get the cancer out, but we know that for some people there's a risk that there's some of the cancer cells that have left where it started from and have gotten someplace else in the body. So when the when the part of the colon comes out with the cancer, there might be some small elements of the cancer that are left behind. And it's important to realize that cancer cells are microscopic. So it takes a lot of cancer cells in one place for the surgeon to be able to see them with their eyes or for a CAT scan or or an MRI to be able to see that on imaging. And so we know that certain patients, based on the stage of their cancer, that there's a risk that they may have some cancer cells left over. And we know that that risk, that we can make that risk less, we can decrease the chance of their cancer coming back we can do that best right at that time and not wait for it to come back. But sometimes to do chemotherapy after a surgery to make the patient's odds be better and have less chance of that cancer coming back and threatening their life.
1: So basically to decrease the risk that it may come back. Decrease the risk of the cancer coming back, exactly. Tim, how much of the colon can you remove? Can the entire colon come out um, What's the what's the truth there?
4: Yeah, so actually, uh, there's some diseases that uh, cause us or require us to take out the whole colon and the rectum, and uh, we can at times uh, actually uh, turn the small intestine into a neorectum and uh, essentially replace the entire structure. Um, but uh, the the entire colon can come out. It's not without uh, some bit of changes or some drastic changes to the to bowel function. Patients in those situations usually will have six to eight bowel movements a day. But the entire c- colon can be removed if necessary. And if you just remove a piece of the colon, how do you put it back together again? So the, uh, the fancy term for putting the colon back together is called an anastomosis, um, and uh, the way we put the two ends of the intestine back together is either with a, a suture technique, sewing it together, or by uh, using a combination of staplers uh, that fire many rows of uh, very small titanium staples that uh, put the uh, two ends of the colon back together.
1: Great. Well, Dr. Thomas is also really one of the experts in this country on on clinical trials. And Jim, I think this is a great opportunity for our listeners to um, hear from you um, what a clinical trial is and uh, and why it represents um, really a, a oftentimes a unique opportunity for them to receive uh, treatment.
6: Well, thank you, Doug. I think, as Dr. Peterson said before, in this country we still have 50,000 people that die each year, of colorectal cancer, and clearly that's unacceptable. We've gotten a lot better over the years, as far as having saving more people, uh, curing more people, screening people, and all those advances, all that has become about because of people partaking in clinical trials. And so, clinical trials is how we devise tomorrow tomorrow's treatments today. And so, we're constantly looking for better surgical approaches, better ways to give radiation therapy new chemotherapy agents, different ways to give chemotherapy such that we get a better outcome. Maybe that better outcome is less toxicity for the patient. Maybe that better outcome is a less chance of their cancer coming back. And so that's all about clinical trials. And at the medical college, we're committed to bringing those advances forward, to having tomorrow's medicines available today. And our patients are a big part of that, of them partaking in a clinical trial is important so that five years from now and ten years from now, we'll be doing this job even better than we're doing it today.
1: Is it safe to say that, uh, that a clinical trial represents what you feel is, pro- is uh, an exciting, uh, hopeful treatment, but it just hasn't been proven? And how does the patient know that their treatment on a clinical trial will be at least as good as if they were treated off of a clinical trial?
6: That's a great question. Um, Clinical trials, you know, there's a lot of effort that goes into clinical trials. In cancer, there's virtually no clinical trials that are involving a placebo or a sugar pill. They all involve very effective therapies. And a lot of times we're taking an existing therapy and then we're tweaking it. We're adding something to it. So the patients on the clinical trial are getting the standard therapy, which we know is effective, and then we're adding something new and exciting on top of that to see if we can make it even work better. And so the studies have shown that participating in a clinical trial uh, delivers the best outcomes. And, and, and we think it's very important to these exciting new developments, all the great science that's going on. There's a lot of promising, hopeful things out there. And that's where clinical trials come in is that's, that's how you get access to the most promising, hopeful new developments that are coming along.
1: Thanks so much, it's a great opportunity to have Dr. Thomas with us. I'll give you the final word on our, our last question of this segment. Why is why are some chemotherapy drugs uh, given orally and why do others need to be given intravenously? Very confusing oftentimes for patients.
6: Yeah, I think it is confusing and, and really it has to do with the chemistry of, of the compound. There are some medicines that just do not survive the GI tract. If you took them orally, They would break down or they would not get absorbed. And so there's some medicines that we have to give uh, intravenously to, to give it into the circulation directly. A lot of the new medicines, however, have been developed that they can be pills. So roughly about half of the new medicines that have come along in the last several years to fight cancer have been actually targeted medicines that represent pills rather than IV chemo. And a lot of times that side effect profile can be better for those targeted therapies.
1: Fantastic. Well, thank you all so much. We'll be back uh, with our final segment after a short break.
0: You're listening to The Word on Medicine. If you'd like more information about something you heard today, call 414-805-3666. Now, here's more of The Word on Medicine on News Talk 1130
1: WISN. You are listening to The Word on Medicine, where the faculty of the Medical College of Wisconsin are making tomorrow better than yesterday. In our final segment of the show, Doctors Peterson and Thomas will be joined by Janice Irby and two of our patients. Janice is a certified wound ostomy nurse with extensive experience in caring for patients with complex wounds, uh, ileostomies, and colostomies, and she'll talk about that uh, in a minute. We also are very lucky to have two patients join us today, Susan Luther and Clarence Bias. Susan was diagnosed with colon cancer in late 2016 at the age of 48 and underwent surgery followed by chemotherapy. Clarence was diagnosed with rectal cancer that required chemotherapy and radiation therapy before surgery. And at the time of operation, he did require a permanent colostomy that he'll talk about in a moment. Janice, maybe we can start with you and you can explain to our listeners uh, what uh, colostomy and an ileostomy? What what are those terms and what do they mean?
7: Well, an ostomy is an opening into a space. So, an ileostomy is opening into the ileum, which is the end of the small intestine, and a colostomy is an opening into the colon. So, the reason someone with col- colorectal cancer may get an ileostomy is before surgery, the surgeon would develop a plan with the patient if the tumor is a little bit closer to the rectal area or in the rectum where they're concerned that about healing after surgery they may give a person a temporary ileostomy to allow time for that area to heal prior to closing them and closing up the intestinal tract
1: so basically if they hook up the colon and the rectum close to the anus down really low where where it's a little bit more difficult, they may, they, they may give the patient a temporary ileostomy.
7: Correct, and a colostomy is when they actually do an opening into the colon. Um, if the tumor is very close to the anal area, where it, the person may not have be able to hold their stool back after surgery, they would give them a more permanent colostomy.
1: So, a colostomy and, a, and an ileostomy mean that the intestine comes out to the skin and then the and then they move their bowels into a bag, correct, correct. I think that 's what many patients often refer to the, refer to it as correct and the, and what is important about about caring for those ostomies why do Why are we lucky enough to have people like you? Why is this a job
7: <laughs> well i what it ends up being important is actually matching their pouching system up to their abdomen. So there are many different types of pouching systems that are available. There are numerous different companies of that supply ostomy pouches. So depending on what their output is, what the contours of the abdomen are, um, it's very important to be able to match up the pouching system to the belly. Um, If we do it right, people can continue to do what they normally do before surgery um, and feel great after surgery and have great function um and we definitely want that for patients
1: sure susan can you take us uh tell us your story perhaps from the time of the colonoscopy and how the results of the colonoscopy were conveyed to you and and then a little bit about the surgery uh sure what what happened when you, when you had your first when you had your colonoscopy, did you did you know that there was a problem before you had the colonoscopy?
8: No, I did not. Since this was my first uh, colonoscopy, I was incredibly nervous. Sure. But was giving an anti-anxiety drug uh, when I arrived. Um, a doctor, right after my colonoscopy, he discussed the results with me right away.
1: So this was just a screening colonoscopy. You didn't know that there was anything wrong, or did you?
8: Um, I had a GI bleed, so oh, yes, I, I did know that.
1: So mm-hmm. you thought there was probably something wrong, and... And then how did the information get get conveyed to you? Did he just tell you once you woke up from the procedure?
8: He told me right when I woke up after the procedure. Yeah. um,
1: And the the first treatment for you then was an operation?
8: Yes, that's correct.
1: And And can you tell us a little bit about the procedure? Uh, Was it done at Frederick Hospital?
8: It was done at Frederick Hospital by Dr. Peterson. I had a foot of my colon removed.
1: And how long were you in the hospital?
8: Uh, Two Two days.
1: I know that uh two days I know that Dr. Peterson is um one of the world's experts on um on all of these different techniques to um to have people recover from surgery with minimal pain and can do you remember any of the th- of the things that uh, she did and then we'll let her maybe talk a little bit about that
8: uh, the surgery for me was the easiest part it was a breeze wow. I got out of the hospital a day early um I had a little bit of abdominal pain but the surgery was not an issue at all.
1: And was your incision, is it uh, was it done laparoscopically or open?
8: Laparoscopically.
1: So how many little incisions have, do you have on um, your tummy?
8: One on my belly button and three other very small incisions.
1: Uh, Carrie, maybe you can talk a little bit about, about two things for our listeners. Number one, um, uh, what part of the colon uh, did you remove? And then uh, a subject that's of great interest to you is is all of these uh, enhanced recovery techniques to minimize pain, enhance the patient's experience in the hospital.
2: Right, absolutely. So um, we removed the right side of uh, Sue's colon. She had a right hemicolectomy, and, and about a foot is removed during that procedure, and also your appendix. And about an inch of the very end of the small intestine. Um, And we were able to do it minimally invasive, so laparoscopic, um, which was really great. And that's why her recovery was so short. Um, Patients usually leave the hospital significantly sooner than if we have to do it, what I like to say, is the old fashioned way with a big incision. Um, the other minimally invasive strategy is, of course, robotic surgery, which is becoming much more popular now. So um, they're both uh, quite an advantage for patients in the recovery standpoint.
1: So, does this, uh, Susan? Did you have a, a tube in your nose, a so-called nasogastric tube, or when you woke up, you were you were just uh, looking pretty much just like you look today? Uh, that's that, correct. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I did not have a tube in my nose. And when did you? When were you allowed to have liquids and food?
8: That night, I was.
1: Oh, wow. Great. So two days in the hospital. Well, yeah, thank you. I was up
8: walking around, uh, not too much long after the surgery.
1: And then, uh, uh, Carrie, I know that, um, that Sue was given chemotherapy afterwards. Why, did, why was it recommended that she have chemotherapy?
2: So unfortunately, the tumor had spread to the lymph nodes that surrounded her colon. So the first place that, that cancer can go when it leaves the wall of the colon is the lymph nodes next to the colon. And we remove those as part of a surgical procedure. So they were removed with her surgery, and they get looked at under the microscope by the pathologist. Just, and they issued a report, took about a week for that to come back, that showed that the tumor had spread to those lymph sure. nodes. And that is what uh, Dr. Thomas was talking about earlier, one of the things that we think indicates a higher chance that tumors can come back.
1: So, so Sue, is your chemotherapy over with now? Uh, yes, it is. It's all over with. And how often do you go back to see your doctors now?
8: Uh, right now, I am going every three months for follow-up.
1: Okay, and the chemotherapy ended how long ago?
2: Uh, about six months ago.
1: Okay, so Carrie, when will that when will that interval of time uh, stretch out a bit more?
2: After two after two years, then we start stretching out the time period from a three months follow up to a six months follow up.
1: So. Great. Well, thank you, yeah. Clarence. Tell us tell us your story. So, you, you required both chemotherapy and radiation first. What what was unique about your rectal cancer that uh, required that?
9: Well, my rectal cancer was pretty big. And they did chemo and radiation to help shrink it before surgery.
1: And did you know that you, how did you find out that you had rectal cancer?
9: Well, I was sick and it was almost like a cold I couldn't get rid of. Hmm. And I said, I better go to the doctor. And when I had to my conan checked out and he started making appointments right away he knew right off the top that something was wrong
1: and did you have blood in your in your yes stools? I did mm-hmm. you did mm-hmm. and and so when you started off on the on the chemotherapy and radiation were they both given together
9: yes they were i would, I would do the chemo one time and then the radiation later
1: not not on the same time, but later on during the week. Okay. Uh-huh. And we're lucky enough to have your medical oncologist here, Dr. Thomas. Uh, Jim, maybe you can tell us, did um, did Clarence g- get both of them uh, together, or was there a period of chemotherapy first for him?
6: Right. So, you know, Cl- Clarence's, we wanted to get as much shrinkage as possible so that he would have a good surgical outcome and we could get all the cancer. And so we did some chemotherapy to shrink it down, and then all, always when we do radiation, we do a little bit of mild chemotherapy with the radiation that makes the radiation work better and can contribute to that shrinkage. And so that was the goal, was to get as much shrinkage as possible so that when Dr. Peterson came in, that the surgery would go as well as it could be expected.
1: Sure. So, Clarence, what, what, during your radiation and chemotherapy, sometimes patients have uh, some nausea. Uh, they, they lose their appetite a little bit. How did you, how did you handle all that? In stride.
9: Um, You will lose your appetite a little bit. You will get a little nausea. And you just have to keep moving on. Sure. You know, it's it's not going to be easy. Um, I also had chemo and radiation after the surgery. So I went through the whole process all over again after surgery.
1: Yeah. How did you manage? One of the things that patients struggle with sometimes is just just getting to the medical center um, every week or – How often did you have to come to Frederick Hospital and the Cancer Center and who did you call on friends, family? I mean, how did you amass how did you amass, if you will, uh, Clarence Team 1 to help you with this? Team
9: 1 was my sister right here and her husband and the public transportation, uh, MTM, there's a lot of different outlooks you can get to get to the hospital. Uh, First of all, If you try your friends and family, and they're going to be the closest one to you and give you the most support. And that's really what you really need, as much support
1: you can get. Carrie, Mm -hmm. what was unique about Clarence's operation that required a colostomy?
2: So he had a very distal rectal cancer that was involving the muscles of the anal sphincter. So this is the muscle that helps you control your bowel functions, the one that you could squeeze and relax when you want to go to the bathroom and have a bowel movement. So uh, unfortunately, we certainly don't want to cut through the tumor and save the muscles and leave tumor behind. So many times when this situation happens, we have to take those muscles out as part of removing the tumor. And of course, when we remove the muscles, then patients can't control their bowel movements, which means we we give them a colostomy so that they can have bowel movements and be functional and do the things that they used to do. We tried to to shrink his tumor as much as possible in order to take to see if we could get an operation where we wouldn't have to take those muscles. But unfortunately, his tumor did not shrink away. So, sure,
1: Clarence, how long did it take you to get used to the used to the colostomy? And is there anything that um, that you're not able to do having a colostomy that uh, impacts your life at all?
9: Um, basically, my life is about the same except. I don't lift. <laughs> I just don't lift. Sure, you know you do what your body allows you to do,
1: and you don't lift because you would get some outpouching and some pressure there. Well,
9: this pressure and I have no stomach muscles, so I don't. I keep from
1: lifting, and that's not only from the surgery but other surgeries. Sure, combined. And then, how often do do you have to uh, care for your uh, colostomy? How big an impact uh, with respect to time? And and oh. activities. I mean, well, my, you've my, obviously gotten used to this. Uh, my, this my
9: activity is basically the same. Once you get used to the ostomy, they have a time schedule of their own, and a lot of patients just have to get used to that time schedule. Mine's two o'clock in the
1: morning. And so what? So you have to empty your bag then at two o'clock well, in when the morning. I get up about
9: three thirty. Oh yeah, most definitely. Okay. Uh-huh. But besides during the day, I can go about my day like nothing's going on. Yeah.
1: Know? So Janice, is this is this fairly typical? I mean most people adapt to a colostomy uh quite easily. And I mean I don't I don't want to give an an over optimistic uh view for those people who are dealing with colon and rectal cancer right now, but obviously Clarence um, manages this quite easily.
7: I think definitely in the long term. I usually tell people it takes about a year, and it doesn't mean that year is going to be, you know, a struggle. You'll have some ups, you'll have some downs, Um, but certainly within a year, most people are well, you know, back to work. Usually within, you know, six week period (laughs) after surgery, then they start are back to work, and it's it's a transition to do all those things during the year that they've. Did before now they're doing them with an ostomy. so in the summertime they may be going to the pool and going swimming well they didn't do that last summer now it's a new transition so that transition to really f- feel completely more normal again I tell people to take about a year
1: but sure well one area that I didn't get to get to really ask uh, dr. Peterson about is the whole area of subspecialty training in colorectal surgery but I I know that we have a video on that, if I'm not mistaken, in Medical Moments. So for our listeners, they can go to YouTube and search out Medical Moments. But I'd like to thank all of you so much for joining us. Uh, Susan, Clarence, uh, so kind of you to share your stories with all of our listeners.
0: Talking about innovative medicine with top experts. It's the Word on Medicine on News Talk 1130 WISN.
1: In our final couple minutes, I'm joined by Drs. Peterson and Thomas, and we're going to follow up on Clarence's situation, which we highlighted in our last segment, because he had, as Dr. Peterson mentioned, Lynch syndrome, and Carrie, you can describe perhaps a couple uh, points on the, on the biology of Lynch syndrome, and then Dr. Thomas will focus on the exciting area of immunotherapy and why it pertains to that.
2: Absolutely. So uh, Lynch syndrome, as we mentioned, is a heritable colon cancer. Um, You when you have this gene, it um, causes mutations in a specific portion of your genome and a specific gene that helps you repair DNA. So you, when that gene is dysfunctional and that protein is dysfunctional, you um, produce something called microsatellite instability, so areas of abnormalities and mutations within your genome. And that's one of the things that we test for when we look... For uh, Lynch syndrome,
1: perfect, Jim. The, I'm sure many of our listeners have heard of immunotherapy. Uh, why would this d- HNPCC or Lynch syndrome be susceptible to immunotherapy?
6: So yeah, immunotherapy is really one of the hottest areas in cancer medicine right now. And so we know we know people with colorectal cancer that have Lynch, that have this problem where their DNA makes mistakes, that they are also very apt to benefit with some of the new immune therapies. And these therapies are actually, we use the immune system, the patient's own immune system, to allow that to come in and clean up the cancer. So if, if people with Lynch syndrome have their cancer come back and are metastatic, that we now have very effective therapies that can work most of the time in these patients. And really, it's not your traditional chemotherapy. It's using your own immune system to fight the cancer.
1: And I'm sure there'll be more of this to come in the future, one of the revolutions in cancer care. This
6: is what clinical trials brings us, is these exciting new developments. And every year there's new things that come out, and immune therapy is one of those things that's very hot right now. And we're just beginning to explore in different cancers is how, how we can use the immune system to help us fight cancer.
1: So exciting. Well, thank you all for listening to our program today, and please join us in two weeks when we return with a unique program devoted to some of the complex conditions which can occur in babies and children. I would like to thank all of you again for listening to today's show and especially acknowledge Sealing Leasing Company and their management team for supporting this program as well as Jerry Bott and Christine Butt at WISN and iHeartMedia and our producer, Dave Michaels. I would also like to thank Mara Lord, Anna Carlson, and our program committee led by Dr. Rana Higgins. We hope you can join us in two weeks, and please visit our website, mcw.edu slash surgery, for more information on this or any other program. If you have additional questions, send us an email at contactsurgery at mcw.edu.